Man, that music bummed me out every single time. We need to get better walk-up music, but that's the point, right? We're, um, we're in a series called Collapse, going to the Book of Lamentations. So, the Taylor Swift game. You guys thought I was probably playing it because Lamentations is a deep subject, full of angst and frustration and sadness, and I wanted to make light of that. Um, actually, here's the thing. It's obvious just by the lyrics put up in that game that Taylor Swift knows how to lament. Knows how to say the world is not right, um, the breakup happened, right? We all love a good breakup, we? Some of us love a good breakup. There's like, meh. She knows how to lament. And her songs about breaks up, breakups and, and broken dreams are amazing works. But that's not what made Taylor Swift famous. Have you ever listened to an album? Song is an Eeyore song. You, you can't listen to it on repeat. And you only that you really resonate with and you got to throw the rest out because you can't just live in the sadness all the time. It's a real bummer. Those are bummer songs. What made Taylor Swift really successful is that she actually knows how to celebrate. Right? When she transitioned into pop songs and celebrated love and celebrated life, she skyrocketed to the top of the charts and became the diva that she is today. See, lamenting needs to move to celebration of what is good, or it leads down a very dark road, a very dark road indeed. We've been in this series called Collapse, and, and we have one more week next week, which I'm really, really excited about. There's a twist that you don't see coming, so you're not going to want to miss that. But we've been going through the book of Lamentations, and Lamentations means, quite literally, how? How could this be? How could this be happening? It comes from the first word of the first verse in the first chapter, and it's actually the first word of all laments, but... How could this be? How could this be happening? And it's this five-chapter reader's theater poetry that was meant to be put on display for worship consumption so that we could walk through and come to terms with the absurdity of pain in hopes for healing and a brighter future. And two things that I, I just want to make sure that we understand. Never underestimate the power of an honest lament. It's what makes those breakup songs so great, the raw honesty of it. And if we don't, in our culture, and especially in the church, give space for honesty when every day with Jesus is not as sweet as the day before. If you're old and you heard that hymn, you know what I'm talking about. This is an old school hymn that says, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Anyway, um, if we don't give space for saying, hey, I'm doing this spiritual journey and it's not easy. I'm doing life and life keeps happening. 
And this stinks. If we don't give space for that, we fail on something because when we name it, when we claim it, when we begin to proclaim the problem, we begin to rob it of its sting because we can put parameters around it. We can call it what it is. Number two, we have to pay attention to sadness because sadness knows the way for joy to be at the helm. That's why we watched that clip from Inside Out. We had to travel through sadness because in sadness we recognize our need to make room for our Savior to meet us and bring healing and restoration because our, our hearts ache, don't they? At different times in our lives, there will be things that break our hearts. And in our sadness, we cry out. And when we cry out, we are heard because God sees our plight. God hears our cries. And when we get to the very end of ourselves, at the end of our pride, at the end of our trying, and we just and put it all out there, we dare to hope with a really long memory of what God can and will do. So today, we're in chapter 4, and I want to kickstart today off with a quote from everybody's favorite neighbor, Mr. Rogers. Now kids, you're probably too young to know uh, Mr. Rogers, but how many of you guys, kids out there, how many of you have watched Daniel Tiger? Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Okay. Um, Daniel Tiger was originally a character on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Who of you adults watched Mr. Rogers? Right? Um, I want to give you this quote from Mr. Rogers. There is no normal life that is free of pain. It is the very wrestling with our problems that can be the impetus or, or the kickstarter for our growth. Can I tell you something? This happened for the second time in about three weeks. I use a, uh, a, a cloud-based tool called Sermonary to write and store all my messages. And I write them and I start with like an outline and then a brain dump and then notes and then... I kind of begin formulating thoughts, and, and then I put it all together in this cloud-based service. And I finished it for this week, and I got to Friday, and I went to pull it back up. And all of my notes, the entirety of the message that I had written was wiped away. Has that ever happened to you? where either you didn't hit save or for whatever reason, all your work is just gone. Um, can I just tell you that in that moment, I was losing it. I did not have time to redo anything. I did not have what it took energy-wise and the capacity. Anybody been there? Where you, I got nothing. This And more you think about what you lost, the angrier you get because of how stupid the situation is. Now, kids, I said stupid. My kids know we don't say stupid about people, but about situations. Occasionally, adults can say that. Okay. I prefaced it. 
So I needed a moment. I needed a moment to cry about it. But what I realized is the more that I talked about it, the more that I focused, the more energy it stole from me. See, what I, come, what I came to find out in that moment is something that I think we all know, but maybe I needed to be reminded of. Thinking about only what you lost will keep you from moving forward. Thinking about only what isn't, what was, what should be, thinking about only what you've lost will keep you from moving forward. Everybody who can, complete this phrase with me. You can get bitter or you can get... Let's try that one more time. You can get bitter or you can get better. Man, that phrase is cliche, but cliches have a truth to them, don't they? See, when suffering happens, when despair happens, when things break down... We can, we can look at Lamentations 340, which we looked at last week, and examine our hearts and allow God to see into it as an opportunity or, as the first few verses of chapter 4 point out, we can instead allow grief and suffering to harden our hearts and make us look like people we wouldn't even recognize. Anybody been there? So here's what we're going to do. Um, I, I started thinking about what living in lament too long does. So I want to give you kind of three, and this list is not exhaustive, but three quick things that living in lament too long does to us. You guys ready? You tracking? The first one is depression. Living in lament too long gives us depression. Look at verse 1 of, of Lamentations 4. How gold has lost its luster. Even the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones lie scatter in the streets. So the world is colorless, and things that once had immense value, man, nobody cares. Have you been there ever emotionally? Right? Where, like, you know what I'm talking about in the movies? The breakup happens, and the world is black and white, and then they meet a new girl, and all of a sudden, everything's color again. Anyway, the black and white part is the part that we're talking about. Colorless, worthless. Now, lamenting can help us come to terms and grieve the problem, but if we only stay in the world is colorless, and everything that once had value no longer has value... It leads into a deep depression, which, of course, causes all kinds of things to come up because it begins to redefine our worldview. And did you know prolonged exposure to sadness and depression has physical consequences into our bodies? And, I, and by the way, for those people that suffer with a clinical depression, can I just say I am sorry? I am sorry if you have never felt that there was space to talk about it and to deal with it. And the physical toll that, that might take on your body is a problem. And if we as the church can pour 
given to each other, we can begin to address it. That's a soapbox moment for me. Um, look at verses 7 and 8. Our princes once glowed with health, brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their faces were as ruddy as rubies, their appearance like fine jewels. But now their faces are blacker than soot. No one recognizes them in the streets. Their skin sticks to their bones. It is as dry and hard as wood. See, these two verses, they put together this idea that our physical appearance can be changed as a result of depression and trauma. And we know this to be true, don't we? You ever been around somebody who's always Eeyore? Eventually... They're just always slouched over. They always have a disposition. They become physically ill. These things happen because of depression. When we live in lament, when lament doesn't turn towards celebration, it can overpower us. And compare it like this, right? The psalmist in Psalm 34, he says like this, those who look to him being God for help will be raised with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. That's a huge contrast with, nah, their faces look like soot. Right? They're, they're, they're skin. They look like twigs. No, the writer of Psalm, he says, those who look to him for help, right, will be radiant with joy. God promises something here. He promises His presence. Notice, He doesn't say, in your sadness, in your brokenness, when things go awry, in your trauma, in a time of suffering, when the relationship ends, when somebody else gets that promotion, when there's issues that happen in our world, when that tragedy strikes. He doesn't promise that everything is perfect. What He promises is His presence, and our attitudes will be that of joy. Here's the other thing. It doesn't say that you have to have it all together either. All it says is those who look to Him for help. So maybe when we're lamenting and we're seeing the things that are wrong in our world, it should forcibly change our perspective to look to God for help. So where do you look, and how do you look to the Lord? So the first thing living lament too, too long does is cause depression. The second thing is comparison. Comparison. I want to read verse 9 to you. Uh, those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Starving, they waste away for lack of food in the fields. Now, the next verse gets really graphic. So, because there's kids in the room, I'm not going to read the next verse. Verses 9 and 10 essentially say, it's better off if we weren't even here. The problem with how strong this is, is it's, it's not coming from a place of a chemical imbalance. It's coming from a place 
of comparison. They have it good, we don't. It doesn't matter. It would be better off if we weren't even doing this. See, there's a temptation to compare our own maladies, our own sicknesses, our own problems, our own despair, our own sadness with others. And these guys are noting the nightmare conditions that they are facing where people are really starving. But instead of doing something about it, they're living in the lament saying, eh, everybody's starving, doesn't matter what we do, so we may as well not try. When we begin comparing what we go through to what someone else is going through, it exposes our own bitterness. Can I say that again? When we begin comparing what we're going through to what someone else is going through, it exposes our own bitterness because our focus becomes what we don't have or what God didn't do. Have you ever had this experience? I call it um, comparison playing into the I don't enjoy this issue. You have something good happen in your life. You get a raise, right? You, you landed your dream job. You, you, you find a house and a place to live. You, whatever you call good, you get a perfect parking spot at HEB. I whatever you call good in your day, right? And you're celebrating it. You go up to somebody, hey, Patrick, can you believe what happened? And Patrick, if he's living in this comparison game, if he's been lamenting too long, he says something like, man, I wish some good breaks could happen to me. Doesn't that just immediately take wind out of your sails? Why? He's saying, well, you get good stuff, but I never get good stuff. What is your focus on? You're focused on what you don't have. It exposes what's there. The, the, the next few verses, 12 through 17, we're not going to read them, but um, they express how pride gets involved in all of that, right? Because there's this disillusionment when things don't go well. And while it's really common for us to say, how could this be happening when something bad is happening Sometimes, left unchecked, living in lament too long, leads to a comparison game, and sometimes it says, I can't enjoy this, and sometimes the comparison plays into the God is my vending machine issue. I would argue that for a lot of us, especially in our country, I'm not going to talk about just the church. I'm just going to say people, our culture in general. We have this view of God that insists that basically we're practical deists. A deist is someone who says if there is a God, God's not involved in the everyday. He's not physically present, but he is the reward giver at the end. And so... That worldview, when comparing, leads to this idea that God owes me or owes all of us but the worst of the worst and the most villainous 
and and you know if I am not essentially a terrorist or a insert whatever your worst person is, if I'm not that, then God owes me something. But God is not a vending machine. What He promises is if you look to Him for help, He will be present. He doesn't promise that everything is perfect. And when we compare what we have or don't have to what someone else has. We end up saying things like, well, I wish I could get a break, or can you believe they got this? They don't deserve that. And all of a sudden, you're right back into lament. It leads to depression. It leads to comparison. And living in lament too long leads to bitterness. Verse 18 says this, We couldn't go into the streets without danger to our lives. Our end was near. Our days were numbered. We are doomed. Have you ever had that sense that you hit rock bottom? when you know things are bad. Here's the, the kicker. Depression and comparison are together. They're like a really bad cocktail. Like a really, really bad cocktail. It's a recipe for a bad understanding of God, humanity, and a skewed perspective on our own lives. Lamentations 4 ends like this. Check it out in verse 22. Oh, beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. It sounds kind of hopeful, right? Yay! There's a light at the end of the tunnel. But then you read the kicker. But Edom, which is their neighbors who haven't been deported from their country, who haven't had someone take over their country, your punishment is just beginning. Soon, your many sins will be exposed. It's when you lament too long, and it leads to bitterness. It's not enough for you to get what you want. You have to take away the good for someone else. That's brutal. That's worse than kids taking each other's toys. We're saying we hope that God abandons you. That's what they're writing. We don't hope that we just get good. We hope that we get good and you get bad. Are you kidding me? Have you ever met somebody who's there? Have you ever scared yourself because you were there? When we live in lament too long, we can be tempted by vengeance and a desire for retaliation against God and others, and it exposes the bitter root. Can I tell you guys a quick story? Everybody loves a quick story. 
There's this Bible character named Moses in the Old Testament. He is the leader of the Israelite people. But the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And day after day, their life consisted of making bricks and getting dumped on. They had no choices. They had no say in how life worked. They were stuck. And Moses comes to the leader of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And eventually, God performs some crazy miracles, and the Israelites marched out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, which was a miracle, and they get to the other side. Now, this story is found in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And, and Exodus 12, no, 15. They cross the other side. And there's this fantastic poem and song that gets written about how they're celebrating how God has set them free. And in the same chapter, right after the song of celebration... The narrator says, um, they walked around the desert for three days, and then they started grumbling. They got really complaining because they didn't have good water to drink. So they came to this place, and there was a pond there. And they named the pond Mara, which means bitterness, because the water was bitter. And so they grumble to Moses, all of these people who had just been slaves that are now set free, instead of seeing with a lens that they have just come out of slavery, they see, we don't have any water, grumble, grumble, grumble. Moses, you just wanted to kill us, which isn't true. He just set them free from slavery. But all they could see, all their energy, all their focus was on what they didn't have. So Moses, he calls up to God and he says, God, what do I do with these people? And God says, throw a big stick into the water. I don't know if it was a magical stick. I'm not ever sure how this story works. I, maybe it was a miracle and, and the stick actually changed the water chemical properties. I don't know the science behind that. Um, but... Here's what I know. What makes water taste bitter? It's either a chemical like sulfur or something in the water, or it's a physiological problem with you. You ever talk to somebody who's going through cancer treatment? When they're going through chemo or they're doing things and they drink water, they'll say it, it, it tastes metallic or it tastes bitter. Why? They're sick. And the chemicals inside them are exposing that sickness by the taste of the water. It could be that the stick went into the water really was a miracle and it changed the properties of the water. But I have a sneaking suspicion that the miracle was just as much about their perspective. They had just been slaves. You don't think they were malnourished? They had just been slaves. You don't think they were sickly? 
God needs to do a healing work, and the healing work is about bitterness. Two chapters later, the Israelites go a few more days, and they're grumbling about water again. Grumble, grumble, grumble. You brought us here to die. And they're camped out by this giant rock. You know what bitterness does? It exposes sickness from the inside out. The writer of Proverbs, in Proverbs 14, says that it rots your marrow. It rots your marrow from the inside. And so they're camped by this rock, and they didn't get it the first time. And they're grumbling to Moses. Moses calls up to God and says, God, what do I do with these people? i got to give them water. And God says, strike the rock with your staff. Now, at this point, Moses is incredibly frustrated. Have you ever lived with somebody who's bitter? Who's lamenting all the time? Eventually, it causes you to get really frustrated with the situation. Moses is frustrated, so he goes and, and he says, you crazy people. He actually said it much more meanly than that. And he gets angry and he hits the rock, but he doesn't just hit the rock, he hits it twice out of anger. Now, living water starts flowing out of the rock and everybody drinks their fill. But that place, the place of arguing... And what God said to Moses after that exchange was, Moses, because you hit the rock out of anger, you will not get to enter into the promised land that we are journeying towards. I wonder if bitterness, when it's full grown, keeps us from the life that God promised. What if the life God promises out there, and because we don't have it already, or because we don't perceive that the vending machine God has given us everything we want, or because we are only so focused on what we don't have, that that bitterness is taking root and keeping us from the life God ultimately wants to give us? I think healing starts with forgiveness. And I think the road of lament is about your lens. There are little paper packets on a bunch of the seats. I think they're like every three seats. And maybe you already picked one up and you've been fiddling with it in the service. And if you haven't, reach around. There should be enough for every family to at least have one. Um, and, and so you may need to share. We may have enough for everybody to have one. I don't know how many we have. But... If you could, for a second, take out your lens, and I want to invite the band because they're they're gonna they're gonna lead us home here. But the lens changes your perspective when you're looking through it. It alters the reality that you're looking at. I wonder. If those three things that living a lament too long causes, depression, comparison, and bitterness, are actually about our lens. Did you know 
latest psychological studies will say if your lens is a positive one, that you will actually be 51% more happy than if your lens is a negative one. 51%. Ah, maybe you've been living in lament way too long. And you've allowed depression to take hold, or you've allowed comparison to take hold, or bitterness to take hold. And I want to invite you to see differently today. Here's the other thing. Maybe you're not living in lament. I know sadness, despair, tragedy, and brokenness is a reality we will all face. The question is, how do you see it? How do you see it? You know, Mr. Rogers said this. He said, there's no should or should not when it comes to having feelings. They're part of who we are, and their origins are beyond our control. And when we believe that, we may find it easier to make constructive choices about what to do with those feelings. In fact, confronting our feelings and giving them appropriate expression, right? Not anger, not depression, not comparison, not bitterness. Appropriate expression always takes strength, not weakness. It takes strength to acknowledge our anger and sometimes more strength yet to curb the aggressive urges anger may bring and channel them into nonviolent outlets. It takes strength to face our sadness and to grieve and let our grief and our anger flow in tears when they need to. It takes strength to talk about our feelings and to reach out for help and comfort when we need it. You ever heard that elephant story? They bring a bunch of blind people to an elephant, and they have them touch different parts to try to figure out what they're touching. And so one's touching the hairy tail, and one's touching the string, and one's touching the rough skin, and one's touching the ear, and one's touching the trunk, and stuck in a, a, a tusk and a mouth, and, and they're trying to describe what they're touching and feeling so that they can actually figure out it's an elephant. But none of them knows it's an elephant because they can't see the whole picture. I wonder if in sharing our lament, I'm saying, here, this is my lens on my brokenness. When I voice and I hand it to someone, and we share our lens, would you help me understand what's going on here? Would you lift me up where I'm broken? And by the way, when we start swapping and sharing lenses, your lens creates part of the picture, and my lens creates part of the picture. And when we do this as a church community, do you know what we find as we share? We don't find an elephant. We find Jesus who's saying, peace, light, all you have to do is look to me, flip that lens, and I'm here to help. And by the way, your brothers and your sisters are here to help. And don't let bitterness take control. It'll keep you from that life that I have for you. So when we lament, 
we're saying this is my perspective right now. This is my lens. But it's not the whole picture. It's not the whole picture. What lens do you have about what's going on in life? 